All right, with that, uh, we're continuing on in Ephesians. We are in Ephesians 2, verses 10 through 22. So as you're turning there, if you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, I invite you to do so. Ephesians 2, I'm going to start at verse 10 and read through 22. And I'm going to read from the NLT. And it reads, For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he has planned for us long ago. Don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews. And you were proud of their circumcision, even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel. And you did not know the covenant promise God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. But now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people. When in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in him one new people from two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross and our hostility towards each other was put to death. He brought the good news, the gospel of peace to you Gentiles who were far away from him and peace to the Jews who were near. Now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Together we are his house, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, and the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles are also being made part of the dwelling where God lives by his spirit. A brief prayer. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this gift. And again, we invite you, Holy Spirit, to illuminate the scripture for our understanding. Reveal to us new truths or remind us of truths we already know. But it is your truth. So, Lord, prepare our hearts. Use me however you see fit. Lord, whatever you want me to say, say whatever you don't, I don't. And we will be careful to give you all the glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. So that's a whole lot to cover here. So it's raining. You didn't want to go anywhere anyways. But Oh, what a, what a, what a gift God has given us in Christ. And um, as, as we've been working through Ephesians and, and as we were considering um, for the last several weeks uh, what Paul was saying to the church, the church in Ephesus, but all those seven churches in that area, that it is by grace alone, through Christ alone, that we're saved. And as he focused in on the first chapter and in half of the chapter two, his focus is what Christ has done. For each and every one of us, those who believe in him and believe in his son as savior. And as we consider this, as we think about this, we ended last week 
just with verse 10, that's why I read verse 10 again, that we are God's masterpiece. And I want, to, I want us to start there before we get into the unity, the peace and the unity of Christ. So as we consider what we, what we see before us is we see that we have been totally, radically changed by God. We are all made in his image, but once we come to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, we are his masterpiece. God saved us not merely to save us from the wrath which we rightly deserve, but he also did this to make something beautiful out of us. We are his workmanship or his craftsmanship. That word that is used for masterpiece, craftsmanship, any of those words in your translation, really that Greek word is poemia or poema, and which, which is translated into the word that we get is poetry. I think I mentioned that last week. And actually, it's, it, it, if you really want to get technical, it means poetry in motion. So God created us poetry in motion. As we think about that, um, as we th- consider that, have you ever considered that you are poetry in motion? Now, if you're sitting here and, and if you're a tough guy, you're like, I'm not. I'm a man, right? Okay, then you're workmanship, okay? But if you really think about it, what Paul is stressing here is once we come in under the saving grace of Jesus, we are poetry in motion. We are God's work of art. God's love is transforming us. It meets us right where we are at. But when we receive this love, it always takes us where we should have already been going. And it always takes us further than we thought we would ever go. And this love of God that saves our soul will also change your life. It's one thing for God to be your savior, that Jesus Christ is your savior, but as we allow him to be our Lord of our life, then we are joining in in this poetry in motion. And then you'll notice he, he says that after we have been saved so we can do good things he had planned long ago, Doing things that he had planned long ago, sometimes we put the, the emphasis uh, on doing things, but you notice always, 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 the doing things always comes after our relationship with Christ. We are not saved by what we do, but what we do gives evidence that we've met Jesus and he's changed our heart. There should be a change in us. For some of us, it's a slow, steady change. Some of us, it's a great change overnight. Some addictions are completely gone immediately. Some struggle with that a little bit. Some, your relationship looks like this. And I've mentioned that before. Ups and downs, lefts and rights. But ultimately, as we allow Christ to be Lord of our life, we become part of this masterpiece. Yeah, as we consider this, God is inviting us to join us in the things that he's already doing. He's not only inviting you to be part of the team, but to be involved in the team. I know some of us disqualify ourselves. We believe in Christ. We accept that he is our savior. We're on the team, but we just sit in the back and we don't participate because we don't think we're worthy. Again, a lot of times when we see good things he planned long ago, well, that's for somebody who's holy. No, that's for all of us to join in. So if we consider this word, this poetry in motion, it it really gives context to that God made you on purpose 
and he thought of you, and it was a creation. He skillfully crafted you. I had mentioned this to a couple of people before. It's not a mold that he just kept making people over and over again. You, you were thought of individually as he made you. And as you consider this more and more, it, the way that I was thinking about it is once we come to Christ, poetry and motion, we're like part of an orchestra where each of us gets to play an instrument. Now, I'm not musically inclined. Like, I'm negatively inclined, right? I can press play. That's it, barely, right? But, but the way that I picture this, whenever I heard this illustration that we're all part of this orchestra, we're all playing our part, and yes, no matter what instrument you're playing, you sound really good in your bedroom, but it sounds so much fuller when we're all together. So maybe like you, maybe like me, you just think all you could do is hit that one note with the triangle. It sounds way cooler if you're with the orchestra. Perhaps that doesn't fit for you. Maybe, maybe if you view it as we're all different colors on the painter's wheel. That you feel like you're maybe one of the darker, less known colors or the eccentrically bright neon colors. Yet on this canvas, God uses us. To create it. That's why the church is so vital that we're together. You are needed to participate in what God is doing. And again, you're sitting here and you don't see that and you don't understand that. Hopefully, you could see that Christ has joined you in to his family. Now, for those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ, we are part of this orchestra or we're this painting canvas or this clay or whatever picture that comes to mind. But, but the important part is not only have we been reconciled or made right with God, but we've also been reconciled and made right with one another. And I don't know about you, but sometimes it's easier to love God than to love you. I hope you feel offended. <laughs> sometimes it's easier to just me and God, me and my quiet time only. And that's very important, obviously, but we are meant to do this together. And that's why Paul is establishing one church, one man, or humanity. See, this church in Ephesus was a church, again, I'm going to emphasize this over and over again, that the Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians were this brand new church together. And for many, many centuries, they did not get along at all. And now they're supposed to do life together. So, of course, there's some animosity. There's some, well, why are we doing it that way? What's this all about? See, because, again, the first chapter and first half of Ephesians 2 is the emphasis of God working through his son, Jesus Christ, of reconciliation between God and the individual. And once that has been established, when Paul states that through reconciliation we must must start always start between you and God, but it also must be between groups of people, between the Jews and the Gentiles. The Gentiles were completely lost and in desperate need of belonging. Not only were they spiritually dead, but they also did not have access to God at all. Like, I don't want to rush through that. Up until Christ's coming, up until that point, the Gentiles had to become Jewish and that was about the extent of what they could experience. The rest of the world, 
believed in all kinds of different things, but there was no hope. Hendrickson, who's a theologian, he wrote this. Not only were the Gentiles Christless, but they were stateless, friendless, hopeless, and godless. As we consider this, as I was studying more and more, a lot of people, not only theologians, but people who, all the historians point to this time before Christ, regardless of where they set believing or not, was the darkest time in society. It is considered, per capita, the most suicides ever. Which is interesting if, if we keep going that way in the world now, it'll be the third time. So let's pray for that. But just, can you imagine, there's zero hope these Gentiles were experiencing until Christ. But again, before we get to what the Gentiles were missing without the hope of God, I, I want to take a brief moment to look at the animosity, the meanness, the bitterness, the separation, the the sheer hate between these people group. Because I can say that, and you're like, yeah, I understand that. Maybe you studied that. Two groups of people don't like each other. What's new? But here are some of the ways that the Gentiles were treated. Several of the Jewish commentaries in this, uh, before this first century, many wrote this, or a variation of this. The only reason Gentiles were created by God was to fuel the fires of hell. What a statement. The Jewish people were not allowed to go into a Gentile home. They were not allowed to eat with Gentiles. Jewish women could not help a Gentile woman give birth because it would be considered an act of treason because you're bringing in another heathen into the world. I can go on and on and on. It got quite dark and depressing. Tuesday was rough, let me say that. But I will share perhaps just one more. Uh, the, the ceremonial laws of if a Jewish man or woman were crossing through a town that was primarily ran by Gentiles, once they got to the outskirts of the town, they had to, had to take off their sandals and knock off the dust. So that way they would not bring any of the, the dirt from the Gentiles' home into their towns. That's wild. Are you, are you grasping how much these two people groups hated each other? Now let's go start a church. So now when we hear things like this, there may be a variety of responses. Wow, how could they do that? Or yet, for some of you, you could see it. You could see yourself doing that. Some kind of hatred, prejudice, meanness, whatever it is over the last several years. I, do, I will say that I do think society has weaponized and caused division, fostered in a culture to create division, uh, but it was already there. And yet, if we look at our own heart, it is easy for us to see a tendency of them versus us. It is part of the original sin. It prim primarily, I believe, has to do with the things, with things between different people. And we don't understand, and we don't like to feel uncomfortable. Just think of original sin. Let's just look at that. Original sin. What was the first thing that Adam said to God after sin? Well, it was the woman you gave me. I think someone said amen. <laughs> <laughs> I 
Amen. All right. I mean, Genesis 3, 12, the man replied, it was the woman you gave me who gave me this fruit, already separating. And, and actually, if you want to look in the Hebrew, this woman that you gave me, gave me the fruit, the word that he's using to gave me the fruit is not like, here you go, honey. It's a hatred because she did it. You see this? The separation already from original sin, them versus us. Now, this is not the same level at all about what I'm about to say. Uh, it's probably more humorous than I made it out to be, but, well, whatever, you'll see. But just think about how you don't like something or a group of people simply based on whatever. Teams, let's just pick on teams. If right now I tell you I hope the Kansas City Chiefs beat the Niners in the Super Bowl, you guys gasp. There are people walking out right this moment. This is not an exaggeration. My next comment, when I was interviewing to be the pastor here, on my third interview, one of the questions was, are you a Dodger fan being from Southern California? <laughs> I lied and said no. <laughs> see, uh, and I'm an angel fan, so feel bad for me, okay? But, but do you see that already? And it's a joke. And, and I'm all for competition. I love games. I love teams versus teams. But do you see us versus them? is already so natural for us, even in the comical things. You're just, just considering it. This is what this new church, I, I think I finally, if, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, I've struggled to figure out how long this church is. I said eight, I said nine and a half. I think it's nine and three quarters years old. But it's a new church. And these churches are full of people who used to hate each other their grandparents hated one another. They weren't even allowed to be together. See, what happened is, is when God came and made the covenant with Abraham to, for the Jewish people to be the chosen people to bring about the Savior, they weren't even Jewish yet. He chose Abraham. He used Abraham to make this covenant to, again, usher in Christ. The Setting the Jewish people, set them apart, following the rules that he gave them, Moses, the Ten Commandments, on and on and on. And, and, and the reason he did that is to set them apart so people can say, what's different about them? Inquire what was different about them. Find that it is about God. And that changes their life, saying, well, I want that. You know, this is true for those of you who are Christians here. Have you ever been asked, why are you okay during this fill in the blank? Well, let me tell you about Jesus. That's what it was supposed to be. However, the Jewish people got a sense of superiority. They're like, we are better. Obviously, God picked us. Now, I know none of us feel that way, but, you know, sometimes it can be easy. Well, I'm a pastor. Who cares? But, but see, the, the, what God used, the people, the people group, was to bring in Christ as for everyone to come. A problem that can come out of blessing, a blessing from God, is pride. You just feel so proud. Look at what God did for me. Or then you leave God out and say, look at all of this. We talked about that last week. And, and to help understand this situation, 
this separation. I, I want to bring up just quickly, we'll turn to Galatians 2 and read 11 through 16. This is when Paul had to confront Peter. So I'll just give you the quick background. Quick background. The church is new. This church, uh, when they're in Antioch, is a few years older than the church in, in Ephesus and those churches. It's a brand new church. Paul has to confront Peter about an issue. An issue that Paul is writing through Ephesians. So uh, that's the background. Um, read all of Galatians 2 on your own and you'll see the, the full picture. But this, this will help us, I hope. Galatians 2, verse 11 through 16 reads this. But when Peter came to Antioch, so this is a church in Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face for what he did was very wrong. I just want to stop real quick. You see what Paul did? Here's a sermon in a sermon. If you have an issue with someone, uh, go to that person. You see that? I had to oppose him to his face, not behind his back, not through the rumor mill. Okay, I'm over it. Okay, but right to his face for what he did was wrong. So what did he do with what was wrong? Verse 12, when he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile believers <gasps> who were not circumcised. Double. <gasps> but afterward, when some friends of James came, Peter would not eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. Let's stop real quick. You see what happened? I could be friends. Peter was friends. They were all Christians. They were all getting along. And then some old Jewish buddies that you grew up with showed up, and now you can't hang out with them anymore. Verse 13. As a result, other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy, and even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. When I saw that they were not following the truth of the gospel message, I said to Peter in front of all the others, since you, a Jew by birth, have discarded the Jewish laws and are living like a Gentile, why are you now trying to make these Gentiles follow the Jewish traditions? You and I are Jews by birth, not sinners like the Gentiles. Yet, we know that a person is not made right with God. Excuse me. We know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ. Not because we have obeyed the law, for no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. You see that? You were saved by grace. You were okay leaving behind all of the rules and regulations, and now you want to apply the rules and regulations because James, your buddy's friends, are here, and you're afraid what they're going to tell your mom and dad. So I don't know about you. I was trying to consider this a little bit more in my life. And, I, and, and instantly I went back to when I was a kid, like a middle schooler, junior higher, and I would have a birthday party. And I wondered how my hockey friends would get along with my youth group friends. So I would invite one group and not the other. Because I didn't want my youth group friends to see that I hung out with a whole bunch of people who cussed like sailors or hockey players. And then on the opposite end, whenever I invited the youth group friends... And, and I wouldn't invite the hockey because I didn't want them necessarily to know that I was supposed to be different. See that? I mean, you could apply it. You, you ever wonder how your work friends would get along with your family friends? Remember, you know, the neighborhood kids? How would they do it? 
I mean, to a smaller degree, but just as significant, you were afraid to introduce your girlfriend who became your wife to your family? <laughs> Not because of my wife. <laughs> You're just worried. How will it blend? How will this come together? You know this is true. You, you look at it in your own life. How, does, how do you get along with your in-laws and then you're afraid? Maybe your in-laws are just the best and all in-laws get along, but that's not always the case. But now apply this these two groups hated each other, and now they're supposed to come together. There was disunity. So that long-winded introduction is what Paul is trying to stress here. What becomes popular in our disunity when we're unhappy, and if we know that they're Christian, is we say they're not Christian. And there is truth to that for sure. There are people who say they're a Christian who, are not, who do not have a saving relationship with Jesus, we covered that last week a little bit. Jesus said, not all who says, Lord, Lord. Totally. But a lot of times we just weaponize it so we don't have to get along. And that is kind of what was happening here. So quickly, I want to work through what it was that the Gentiles were missing out. It's called, in theological terms, it's the fivefold alienation of the Gentile world. Which means, here are the five things Gentiles, which unless you're Jewish, you're a Gentile. And if you're not a believer in Christ, now that Christ has come, these are the, are the alienations. This is what we are missing out on, the five things we miss out on when we don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And we'll pick it up. Or excuse me, one other comment. In verse 11, it says, Don't forget that the Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens. It's the same terminology that uh, King David used against Goliath. You uncircumcised heathen. It was a derogatory. He just cussed at him and made fun of his mom. So that, that's, what, that's kind of like the emphasis. Like you're not even worthy. Your heritage is not worthy. And then in verse 12, here's the five things that you're missing out on. The first one is without Christ. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. That's the first one. That's the worst one. You were without Christ. What does that mean when you hear that you were without Christ? You had no hope, no hope of the promised Messiah. See, these Gentiles were idolatrous. They weren't atheists. They believed in everything. They believed in all kinds of everything else that would not lead them to hope. They were without Christ. We'll circle back to that. The second thing, the second, number two of the fivefold alienation is they were without citizenship. That's the second part of verse 12. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel. You were excluded from citizenship. That means you could be there, but you couldn't really live there. You couldn't own anything. You were not really a part of anything that was going on. You were simply a sojourner, which we are called a pilgrim passing through. It's like whenever you go to some countries, unless you're a citizen, you can't own land. You can't even be there. Marcus and Jody are in Thailand for Jody's treatment. Every 90 days or so, they have to leave, renew their visa, and come back. They can't stay there permanently. And that's without citizenship. 
perhaps uh, New King James, if you're reading that, says without the commonwealth, which means citizenship. See, there's a story in Mark 7, and I'll just talk about it here and just point out a couple of things from there. Mark 7, um, this is now where Jesus is starting to heal a lot of people. And if you pay close attention, he's healing Gentiles and not Jewish people. Because now Jesus is, has come to establish, I'm here for everybody who believes in me. And, as, and then there's this lady, she comes up from Syria, and she has a uh, daughter that she's begging Christ to uh, get the demon, out of, uh, the demon out of her daughter. And Jesus says something very interesting in Mark 7, verse 27. He, Jesus tells her, first, I should feed the children... My own family, the Jews, it isn't right to take food from the children and throw it to the dogs. And you're like, oh, Jesus, you're so mean. Why would you say that? See, what Jesus is establishing is he's saying that for everyone who's witnessing this healing. To say, originally, yes, it was for the Jews, my own children, God's chosen people. It isn't right to take food from the children and throw it to the dogs. It's not right for me to heal your people if it means to exclude the Jewish people. And in verse 28, she replies, that's true, Lord, but even the dogs under the table are allowed to eat the scraps from the children's plates. And then Jesus replies in verse 29, good answer. He said, now go home, for the demon has left your daughter. And when she arrived home, she found a little girl lying quietly in bed, and the demon was gone. All right, so he takes this prejudice... He even uses it towards her. And she says, yes, but even the dogs, and it actually is translated, even the lost puppies, if you want to be technical, under the table are allowed to eat the scraps from the children's plate. And he says, good answer. You're right. I mean, even, Paul even says this uh, in, in Romans 11 when he talks about the olive branches being grafted in. He says, some of the branches on Abraham's tree, some of the people of Israel have been broken off. But, and you Gentiles were branches from a wild olive tree. You have been grafted in, so now you have received the blessing of God promised. But you must not brag about it. So he's, he's including them slowly. And it's not for the Gentiles' sake when Jesus is saying this. It is, but it's also for the Jewish people to think, oh, you mean he came for everybody? Yes. Now, if this offends you, you're not alone. In our Western eyes, and our American eyes, we want things even Stephen. Anyone here have three children and only two cookies, so you just eat two cookies because it's not worth the fight? Okay, that me, all right? Right? Even Stephen. Uh, growing up, we had a story. You pour, I pick. You pour the soda, and I get to pick which one. It forced my brother to make it even Stephen. We like that. It's the right thing to do, justice, right? What Jesus is saying here is it wasn't justified back then. Christ hadn't come yet. This is the way that it was. You were dogs under the table. And the Gentile lady was like, but at least I get the scraps. For some of us who remember what it was like before Christ, begged for scraps. We wanted it out. We didn't care what it was last week when we were talking about uh, not boasting anymore, uh, Cynthia came and, and told me, she said, so we're not going to bring our booster table, chair to the table? Right. 
But I want to sit closest to Jesus, just be at the table. But, but for us, and maybe I'm just speaking for me, I can get proud and think, look at all these things I've done. I think I need a higher position at the table. When the people who are lost are just hopeful to get a glimpse. Remember the woman who touched Jesus' garment? I don't have to talk to him, just the scraps. And that's, that's what he's saying. You, you're not, before Christ, you were not a citizen. You had no rights. You weren't a part of anything. That's why whenever you go on vacation and you leave, and yeah, you may have a good time, but you know that first night back in your own bed, it's the best sleep you've ever had. The third thing, the third thing that he mentions is you were strangers to the covenant. See that? He says, uh, still in verse 12, excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel, and you do not know the covenant promise God made to them. Strangers to the covenant. That means you weren't part of the original plan. Although you were, God's plan was always Christ, but the, the way of bringing it up, they did not know the covenant. It was actually hidden. The Jewish people wouldn't share the the. Uh, the covenant that God made with Abraham nor David. They just felt, the Gentiles just felt like we have nothing, which leads us to the fourth one and having no hope. And you do not know the covenant promises God has made them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. Having no hope. That means having nothing to rest on, not just something to look forward to, but something that holds you tightly. In the ancient world, the most hopeless time ever, I mentioned before, before Christ, the dark world, that's why, that's why as, when Christmas comes, we talk about the light of the world. That should make us so excited. It doesn't matter if you've celebrated 70 Christmases, the light of the world has come in a world where there was no hope and no light. I think perhaps because we have light switches or we say, hey, Siri, turn on the light. Or we have flashlights. We kind of miss out on the fact that this world is very, very dark at night. Have you ever been camping out in the middle of nowhere and absolutely no light and you turn on your flashlight and it flickers and dies? And you're probably thinking, well, that's why you bring more batteries. Yes, you're right. But that fear, that f I don't watch scary movies, but I know I'm going to get eaten. There's no hope. Nothing. That's why the sunrise is so beautiful. The darkest point of the day is right before the sun comes up. Do you remember that? For those of you who weren't walking with the Lord for a time, do you remember when there was darkness? Desperately need of light. You didn't know you needed it, but once you had it, you can't imagine yourself without it. That's why in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, it says, sorrow, we do not sorrow without hope. We believe there's hope. And then fifth, he mentions it there at the end, without God. That means you are far away from God. The word is alienated from God. That's why it's called the five alienations away from God. That's why he's saying, you Gentiles, he's talking to them specifically, you weren't part of this. And you're like, oh man, he's really beating him up. The world is without Christ, without hope. If you are without Christ, you are without hope and without God, and there isn't anything that can be done except for Christ. 
And then it's another but God moment, if you will. In verse 13, but now, which is the same emphasis that we mentioned last week, but God, but you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, alienated, but now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. Hallelujah. And that's us. For those of us who put our trust in, but now we have been brought in. Verse 14 goes on, for Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united the Jews and the Gentiles into, the, uh, into one people when in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. Now he's talking about peace. You'll notice that he talks about peace several times. But he's talking about this united front. God reconciled you individually. Now he's reconciling you as a people. He's brought you near. The only way you can come to God is through his blood. He's brought this peace He's united, verse 14, Jews and Gentiles into one people or one humanity in his own body. He broke down, in verse 14, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. So when Paul wrote this down, everyone hears this and, and we can picture it as, okay, yep, yeah, the wall of hostility between you and I, we can finally talk. But the, for the first century readers, when they're reading this, they know exactly what he's talking about. And here's a picture of the wall of hostility, if you will. In the Jewish temple in, in Jerusalem, there was, um, here it is. There was, here's the middle of the temple and there's the walls and you see at the bottom right, the eastern wall. And then you see the, up to the, towards the left in the middle of the double gate, that was the gate that the Gentiles were allowed to and then that big yellow circle is the court of the Gentiles. That is as far as the Gentiles could go, even if they were believers in Yahweh. And then if you just go to the right there, it's called the beautiful gate, that little opening about in the middle, and then inside there was the court of women. So the Gentiles had to stay there, then the women could only go there, the Jewish women specifically, and then just right inside there, the temple, then the men, the Jewish men can go in, and then the sanctuary that you see, only the priest can go in. You see how walled that is and then on the signs there, and whenever we get to Israel, at some point, we continue to pray for Israel. But when we go there, you will still see signs that they put up to show. It says, Court of the Gentiles. And there was a line that said, Do not pass for penalty of death. And there would be soldiers there that would kill Gentiles without question. It didn't matter why you were coming in there. You were not welcome. Can you imagine if that's how this church was? I don't know how we would separate it, but you can probably think of a half dozen way. Men on this side, women on this side. If you're from this or this. If you're a 49er fan, come on in. If you're Ken's, stay out in the lobby. You know, whatever it is, whatever separation it is, he says it broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. And then quite literally about 20 years after this, excuse me, like 30 something years after this, all the walls are torn down. Everything is broken literally from the Roman Empire. So this is the picture that he's, he's painting, that Paul is painting. Then he goes on in verse 15, and he says, he did this by ending the system of the law with its commandments and regulations. And just for the sake of time, I won't go there, but if you want to read in Romans 9, you'll, talk, you'll see how if we attempt to live in the law still, it'll be our noose, it'll kill us. 
ending the system at all. And he made peace. He is saying your identity is in Christ. You are no longer separated by your differences because you are starting on even ground in Christ. You're not a student who happens to be a Christian. You're not a mother who happens to be a Christian, a boss who happens to be a Christian, an athlete, a father, on and on. You are a Christian who happens to be a mother, who happens to be a father. See, because Paul knows, because of Christ, he knows you can't have true peace with Christ when you are lacking peace with one another. You can pretend, but in the back of your mind, you know there's no peace. And that is what he, Paul, is bringing about. And, and here's the four areas where he's talking about peace specifically. He does it in verse 14, 15, and twice in 17. So in verse 14, we read that, we touched on it here. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. It's not the peace of God, it's the peace in God that we share with one another. It's not the shalom peace, it's the epohai peace. It's all of us in Christ peace. It's it, so smart that he uses a word in peace that represents both Christ and us. He united Jews and Gentiles. And then if you drop down to verse 15, he did this by ending the system of the law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from two groups. 16, together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross and our hostility toward each other was put to death. He brought the good news or the gospel of peace now, this word peace is the one that is talking about shalom, the peace you can only have in Christ, to you Gentiles who were far away from him, and peace to the Jews who were near. Now, all of us, verse 18, now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. There's no levels. There's no holier than thou's. There's no you have to go to a priest or you have to go to someone. You have to go to me. You have to go to your grandma. You can go to Christ. So then he goes on in verse 19. So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. Now he's working backwards and saying, remember you weren't citizens? Now you're no longer those things. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Together we are his house. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. And just quickly as we consider the cornerstone, this cornerstone, we think of buildings, we think of all that which is correct. We build our life on the rock, um, the cornerstone. This also means, again, and I think I had mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, this means we are starting from a position of stability and not a position in a hole that we are trying to dig ourselves out of. That's such a curious term, dig yourself out of a hole. Don't you just keep digging down? Right? So he's, he's establishing again, just in this little phrase, this cornerstone is Jesus Christ himself. Once you believe, you are starting there, not where you were. 
And then we are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles are also being made part of his dwelling where God lives by his spirit. This brings so much hope to the first century Gentiles. You mean this spirit of God that we hear about, we get it too? We've been told for centuries, not only do we not have access to God the Father, but God the Spirit in our lives. You mean he cares for us? Like on purpose? That we are a part of this thing? So if we could just consider this this morning, if just thinking about those four times the peace is mentioned, I would say, if there is a lack of peace in your life, I'm not talking about a momentarily something happens, your roof is leaking, and you're, ah. that happened. It's fixed now. Um, or, you know, you get a bad diagnosis and all of a sudden you have your freak out moment. I'm just talking about a lack of peace where you wake up every morning and there isn't peace. Where you just feel kind of dull. The first thing I would, at least for, for me that I consider, is just examining what, what is this lack of peace? The first one is, is there peace between me and God? Have I been reconciled with God? Do I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior? Have I confessed my sin? Have I repented? Have I accepted the forgiveness of sin? Sometimes I look at myself not the way God looks at me, but the way I look at me. That's foundational. Start there. Do you have the peace that only comes from a saving relationship with Christ? Perhaps you're a Christian. You know, straight away in your life that something is going on and, and, and you go and, and you correct that. And you take a look, see what's going on in your life. Maybe that's the lack of peace. I will say if, if you're avoiding God, there's, there's a lot, you have a lack of peace. Some of the reasons I wrote down the reasons why people can avoid God is um, the way you avoid God is you don't pray as much. You don't read as much. You don't sing as much. You don't think of him as much. Maybe here's another litmus test that you can see if there's a lack of this peace with God. Are you scared of God right now? Are you scared of him? I'm not talking about fear of the Lord. That's completely different. Fear of the Lord is our strong foundation. I'm talking about are you scared that if you go before him, he's going to shake his finger at you? That's not God. Yes, there's consequences for our sins. Yes, all of that. But if you're just simply scared of him, perhaps there's a lack of intimacy between you and God. So get right with the Lord first. If you're in here this morning and you do not know this peace, you do not have salvation, today is the day. He wants you wherever you're at. He already knows all that you did. And he still sent Christ for you. The second thing, if there's a lack of peace in your life, is there any issue between you and someone, another people group? And maybe it's not even a people group. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's your friend. Maybe it's your brother, your sister. Fill in the blank. Is there any issue between the two of you or the group of you? Perhaps you desire peace, yet the other person on the other end is not there and they're actively doing something against you. Like Hebrews say, as far as it relates to you, have peace. Have you forgiven them? 
Are you still in the process of forgiving them? You know, just, and I know I've said this before, sometimes, specifically, I think of my biological father. I thought I had forgiven him truly, and then I got married, and then I was mad at him. I had to forgive him again. Then I thought I was good. Then we had our first child. Then I was mad that I didn't have a father, so I had to forgive him again. Then we had our daughter. I was mad at him. But the third time, I wasn't mad at him anymore. We're talking over 30-something years. Perhaps it's ongoing forgiveness. So if there's a lack of peace, just... Just consider where you at, where are you at first with Christ and then where are you at with other people? Because if you remember verse 10 where we started, I know that was so long ago. For we are God's masterpiece. We are poetry in motion. He created us anew in Christ Jesus. God desires for us to be part of it so that way we could all play the right note or be the right color on the wheel or be the, the canvas, be there on the canvas. And it's easier to be used by God when we have peace with him and peace with one another. And will it be perfect with one another? Absolutely not. But as far as it relates to you, are you desiring this peace? Because as far as peace first again with Christ and peace within the body, that's as far as the church at large will go. The world is watching us to see how we get along with each other. That's why, G that's why Jesus said, they will know your love for me by the way. You love one another. He really meant it. So as we just close, just consider you are a masterpiece. And so is everybody next to you who believes in Jesus Christ. Let's treat each other as such. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this time and for your love. And there's so much to cover here, Lord. And, and we recognize that we, are, we were at one time so far from you. And all those things that, were, that Paul mentions, those, those five standards, those... Um, five alienations, that was us before Christ. Hmm. We were without you and we were without citizenship and we were not part of the covenant. We were without you, without hope. But yet, you came along and you sent your son to die for our sins, each and every one of us who calls upon your name, who believes so, Lord, first, that's the peace that we need, first of all, that Paul is talking about. And then the second is peace with one another. Thank you for making a way when there was no way. Thank you for being the cornerstone. Thank you, thank you for using us despite us. Lord, if anyone in here is like what Peter was doing back in Galatians, that um, we just are different at different times with different people, will you reveal that to us? Will, will we be the same? Will we love the same no matter the situation? Because it's a love of you. Lord, thank you for ending the system of the law. Thank you for not abolishing it, but come to fulfill it on our behalf. Let us continue to be agents of grace and mercy as you have shown us. 
full of truth and your truth. As we sing a couple more songs, will you just speak to us? We thank you for your love. In Jesus' name, amen.